0: expressed on I Care Out Loud are mine and those of my guests. They should not be considered opinions of either Ocular Surgery News or Slack Incorporated, although you and I both know they should be. Hey, this is Dr. Daryl White, and welcome to another episode of I Care Out Loud. This is the place where we're taking stuff that you might just be thinking, and we say it out loud. Let's talk about optimizing the ocular surface for surgery. Let's talk about treating dry eye around the time of cataract surgery and laser refractive surgery. Now the vast majority of us don't do laser refractive surgery any longer. I do. I still do LASIK and PRK. But as time has gone on and as volumes have gone down, it turns out that fewer and fewer intersegment surgeons actually do LASIK and PRK. So, for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to concentrate on cataract surgery. For the purposes of this talk, I'm going to talk about mostly cataract surgery and and the the subtitle of this should be the harsh truths about treating the perioperative dry eye. Now as I always do, let's talk about uh, some possible conflict of interest disclosures. Since this is the dry eye space, and since I do so much work in this space, you should probably assume that any medication that I might mention is a medication where I have some sort of contractual relationship with the company that makes it. I will either be a consultant or a speaker or both. For most of the medications we're going to talk about and of course that includes things like Restasis and Sequa and Zydra as well as some of the steroids the Lodoprednol franchises and the newer older medicine on the market Flarex so the harsh truths of treating dry eye around the time of cataract surgery there's been a lot of work in this area and a lot of work done by really, really important people and people who've really dedicated themselves in this space. And, and the first one is, is my friend Eric Donenfeld, And Eric is famous for saying that if you diagnose dry eye before you operate, it's your patient's problem. But if you diagnose it post-operatively, it's your problem. Even if you absolutely positively know that there's dry eye preoperatively and you document it out of the wazoo, if you don't tell your patient that they have a dry eye and postoperatively you have an issue and then tell them about it, they're going to reasonably assume that you caused it. And, you know, you did. You certainly will have made the dryness worse by doing surgery, but you can save yourself that trouble by telling them prior to the surgery that they have dry eye. So here's hoping that you can handle the truth because harsh truth number one is as a surgeon in today's world you really have to see every patient before you operate on them. You have to look at them even if it's a quick look you have to look and see is there a cataract is the cataract visually significant and is there dry eye as an aside. I think in this day and age, you should also be able to rule out any confounding factors on the retina side. Everybody should probably do an OCT in every single patient. OCTs really now are ubiquitous. I I don't know if I know a single anterior segment surgery practice that doesn't have some sort of OCT that would allow them to see evidence of macular degeneration, an epiretinal membrane, some sort of retinal pathology that will upset your patient's apple cart. Now, once you've seen the patient, and once you've decided to operate, you are now responsible for everything that happens after the surgery. Which brings up harsh truth number two. Every one of your patients has dry eye. Now, this is an exaggeration, of course, but it's only a tiny exaggeration. The vast majority of your patients preoperatively have a diagnosable dry eye. All types of ocular surface disease are going to cause unpredictable preoperative measurements, likely delayed healing, and almost certainly suboptimal postoperative results. Your patient's not going to see as well as they're supposed to. Your perfectly done six minute cataract surgery with an aspheric intraocular lens placed in the capsular bag behind a perfectly centered 5.5 millimeter capsular axis is going to give a result which is not indicative of the excellence of your surgery if you don't take care of the dry eye. Even our big organizations are starting to come to this realization. Ascaris has figured it out. Ascaris now has their preoperative ocular surface disease algorithm, courtesy of the Star Chamber. Chris Starr was the first author on a paper that's really quite a good paper and a really very, very comprehensive effort to kind of parse the details of the perioperative dry eye. The Askers protocol comes up with a new term which I really rather like, and they're calling it visually significant dry eye. I would take it a little bit further as we see as we go on here and say that all dry eye is going to be visually significant and you need to address it But the specifics of the Askers protocol really come down to making sure that you're getting good preoperative measurements when you've got visually significant dry eye that's going to affect your measurements. Dry eye really is unbelievably common. Bill Trattler I think gets credit for being the first one to really talk about this. He's been talking about it for at least, oh gosh, 16 or 17 years and has written and authored or co-authored some very important patient papers about this. The FACO study uh, showed that 87% of patients who are scheduled for cataract surgery can be diagnosed with dry eye. Blurred vision is a much more common symptom than burning or foreign body sensation, and so the patients very often don't know they have a dry eye. The clinical signs of the dry eye is how the diagnosis is made much more accurately more subtle things point of service tests like tear osmolarity can also be used and Trattler and Donenfeld wrote a, a paper that showed that if you do cataract surgery you actually make patients more dry and they did this by doing pre-operative and post-operative tear osmolarity testing Alice Petropoulos wrote a really nice paper with Cynthia Matosian, Greg Birdie, Ranjan Maholtra, and Richard Potvin where they looked at the use of tear osmolarity in the diagnostic process preoperatively and people who have an abnormal tear osmolarity are absolutely going to be more susceptible to that postoperative dry eye surprise. Now we should be doing screening tests if we have them for some of the more subtle things. If you have the ability to, to visualize meibomian glands either with something like LipaScan or LipaView, if you have a Mybox test or any of the other ways to image meibomian glands, you can save yourself some trouble and doing corneal topography is perhaps one of the more subtle or elegant ways to look at the possibility of having dryness. And again, here, uh, Bill Trattler gets credit for using osmolarity as a way to show how powerful treating the ocular surface can be. Bill has a very famous paper and two pictures which are ubiquitous in all of the talks that we hear about dry around the time of surgery. He had a patient who had two and a half diopters of corneal cylinder and just simply put a couple drops of blink into the patient's eye a couple times a day, had them come back a couple weeks later, and the patient was totally spherical. Having said all that, sometimes it's even easier than that. You know before you even get into the examination room patient comes into the office and you can just tell. In my office, the the staff likes to call patients who have an obvious dry eye, Linda Blair. I may have mentioned this before. Linda Blair comes into the office and she's obvious. She's just all disheveled. She's got black tears running down her face. Her hair's on fire, her head's spinning, there's green stuff coming out of her mouth and she walks in and says,
1: my eyes
0: are burning, it's like they're on fire. Fix me. Yeah. You kind of (laughs) know, Linda needs some help. She's got dryness, don't operate on her before you get her feeling better. If you listen really hard, almost everybody tells you that they have dry eye though. The key thing is to listen for the normal things. My eyes are burning, I've got tearing, I have a foreign body sensation. I have dry eye. Most common thing that people say when they have dry eye, one of my staff members said, why are you coming to see Dr. White? Well, my eyes are dry. It's literally the most common thing they say, they tell you, I have a dry eye. Don't ignore them. But if you listen hard to their visual complaints, you also know that you're dealing with dry eye if they say that their vision fluctuates. That is a classic tip-off, that there's dryness. I think that we should be helping them with that conversation by asking them very specific questions. There are, very, there are a few really, really good questionnaires out there that we can use. At Sky Vision, we use both the speed test and the OSDI. I think they're both really good. I think they're both really helpful. Um, we don't use the Sandy test, but for this purpose, I think the Sandy is totally accurate. Really, you're just trying to identify people who might have dry eye. But even if you listen really hard, even if you ask them really good questions, Sometimes, before they get into the exam room, you got nothing. You don't know. You don't know who has dryness and who's going to be sabotaging you. So at this stage, we do the doctor thing. We're going to sit them down at the slit lamp and do all of our doctorly things and make sure that we don't miss dry eye. The four things that we look for at the slit lamp really easy. Is there any staining? Doesn't matter whether you use fluorescein or lysamine green, but you have to use one of them. What's the tear breakup time? Is there a low tear meniscus? And is the conjunctiva sticky? I like this one. The conjunctiva should move smoothly over itself. The tarsal conjunctiva should glide over the bulbar conjunctiva, and there should be essentially no movement of the bulbar conjunctiva. If you see the conj wiggle, that patient has dry eye. It's as simple as that. Tear osmolarity, I think, is brilliant. If you have a tear osmolarity which is higher than 308 in either eye, that patient has a dry eye. They should be treated. If there's asymmetry between the two eyes that's greater than eight milliosmoles, that patient has dry eye. Your eyes should be symmetric. Having tear osmolarity, which is greatly different between the two eyes, is as abnormal as if you checked the sodium levels with a blood draw from the left arm and the right arm, and they were different. It's not supposed to be like that. Homeostasis means that your eyes are symmetric and symmetrically normal. Make the diagnosis of dry eye. Use the things that you know, things that you do all the time, don't miss the diagnosis of dry eye do a tear breakup time doesn't have to be fancy one Mississippi two Mississippi three Mississippi if you're if you have a PhD in mathematics switch it up one one thousand two one thousand three one thousand doesn't matter I don't think you need to use a clock but if you have a cheap Casio watch it certainly takes makes great time anything that's under eight seconds is abnormal in some states, this is the single test that will determine whether or not your patient's dry eye medications will be covered. Ohio happens to be one of, all of our uh, all of our insurance companies want that single test. What's the tier breakup time? I think it's silly that that's the only thing that they, they want, but learn that because that will help you to get your patient's medicines covered. Now, brings up harsh truth number three. Now that you've made the diagnosis, you have to treat every single patient that you're going to do cataract surgery on. However, White's rule of dry eye treatment is invoked here. You can't make an asymptomatic patient feel better. So you've done all this stuff to diagnose a dry eye, and your patient looks at you like you've got three heads and says, Doc, I don't have dry eye. My eyes feel great. They don't feel dry at all. I'm not tearing, don't have a foreign body sensation, burning, nothing. Doesn't matter. You need to treat every single dry eye you find. Making the diagnosis is easy. It's like chasing unicorns. Catching them is the problem. Treating dry eye is hard. But you can't take no for an answer. Because harsh truth number four is... Anterior segment surgery makes every eye drier. If you have preoperative dry eye, surgery makes dry eye worse. Now, I think treating dry eye in this case means using real medicines. I have a strong bias that if you find dry eye, you should treat the patients as if they were a real live, honest-to-goodness, dry eye patient and start them on real live, honest-to-goodness, long-term dry eye. This means, in our world today, either cyclosporine A or lifitegrast. The cyclosporine A marketplace just got a little bit more complex. Now we have both Restasis, which is cyclosporine A in a lipid emulsion, and Sequa which is cyclosporine A in a micelle-encapsulated solution. Now, this is not the place to talk about the various uh, pluses and minuses, but I, I think cyclosporine in either of those forms is one of the ways to treat dry eye. Lefitigrast is a different way to treat dry eye, but all three of those medications work very, very well. You want it to work as quickly as possible, and you want it to work in such a way that you're confident that your preoperative measurements are going to result in an accurate postoperative treatment. I think that when you make the diagnosis of dry eye, knowing that the dry eye is going to be worse for several months postoperatively, that at least part of what you should be doing is starting your patient on either cyclosporine A of any type that's going to be tolerable, which means that the gener- generics are a problem, and in my opinion, in, in our experience, compounded cyclosporine A is not very comfortable, or Lefidograst, Zydra. Now, how about some of the other fancy treatments like thermal pulsatile treatment, lipoflow or some of the other treatments where you're heating the lid and expressing? I think they're great. I think it's challenging to get patients to, to do something like that, where they're gonna pay out of pocket around the time of surgery. But if you have obvious meibomian gland disease, if you have obvious inspissation, poor lipid quality, I think trying to get your patient to do that is helpful. Whether you're doing thermal thermal pulsatile treatment, or intense pulse light, or variations of of the two, I don't think it really matters. And and good on you if you can get your patient to do it, because they will turn out better faster if you do. I just have found that to be a challenge. Harsh truth number 5 Mismet expectations on the patient's side equals a bad outcome. If they don't have their expectations met, it doesn't matter why. You didn't do a good job as a surgeon. In order to help that, one of the things that you have saved yourself is anything around dry eye if you've treated them preoperatively. And here's a post-op pearl. When those things happen, I always start my explanation with something that goes along the lines of, you know, when we talked about your dry eye before the surgery, I mentioned... And then go on. If you diagnose and treat dry eye in the pre-op setting, it'll take one very troublesome, possible difficulty post-operatively off the table. Now, harsh truth number six: treat and dry eye is hard. All the cyclosporin medicines, lifitegrast, everything is expensive. The pre auth landscape is daunting. Your staff hates doing it. The patient hates going through it. Heaven knows you want no part of that whole thing. In the past, I haven't been too terribly sympathetic to those kinds of things when patients have, when doctors have complained to me about my really dogmatic approach. If you find a dry, you have to treat dry. If you find dry that you're treating, you have to treat it in a really serious dry way. But, I've been worn down, I've been listening, I think that perhaps I've been a little bit too unfeeling, so I've changed. For those of you who only want to get the ocular surface into a ready state to do the surgery and to keep your patient In a good enough ocular surface state that they will recover quickly, I have two words. Steroids. Steroids. When you have a need for speed, when you want to get the cornea up and going and ready to measure, put your patient on steroids. I think right now the best steroid for dry eye is fluoromethalone, and in that group, flurometholone acetate is the better of the medications. Quick stepping aside about the flurometholone and dry eye, there was a study done earlier in 2019 that showed that in cell cultures if you use flurometholone on corneal and conjunctival epithelial cells, the genes that produce mucin are upregulated. Flurometholone upregulates mucin production in conjunctival and corneal epithelial cells. If we go all the way back to 1984, I think it was, when the Alcon medication Flarex was first approved, this this is mind-boggling, the phase three FDA trial actually pitted Flarex against branded FML against branded PredForte. Can you imagine an FDA trial doing that now? It's astonishing, but that's the way it was done back then. The results of that trial just paraphrasing it, were that Flarex had equal anti-inflammatory efficacy to that of Predforte, but it had a safety profile that was equal to that of FML. So if you're going to use steroids perioperatively, I think that your choices really come down to fluoromethylone or lotoprednol And with lodopredinol, my experience is that lodopredinol suspensions work better than lodopredinol gels, and that Flarex works better than any of the other fluoromethylone medications, but really using steroids is what you should do. Now, realize that if you're using steroids around the time of the surgery because you have significant dry eye, you can no longer do your less drops, no drops therapy unless you're using something like an extended release surface steroid similar to, or uh, like Dextenza, which is the slow dexamethasone eluding punctal plug made by Ocular Therapeutics. Um, The one company I do not have a conflict with right now, by the way, I just love the delivery model. But unless you're doing that, your whole less drops, no drops thing has to go out the window because you have to continue using the topical steroids. Start them prior to the surgery, certainly no less than two weeks prior to the surgery because you want to get the ocular surface to be healthy. And really, two weeks prior to your last measurements, I think, is basically the minimum. And I think you'll find that the oculus surface cleans up very, very nicely if you have your patients on steroids for two weeks. You want to treat at least four weeks postoperatively. And if you do, you're going to notice something which will be very familiar to uh, older docs like me. I'm uh, 59, going to be 60 pretty soon. Oh, my God. I may have to talk about that. Crack, I'm choking up about it. Um, but when we all used steroids all the time, four times a day, and for those of you who are still using steroids four times a day, There's this phenomenon where in week five or six post-op, your patient calls up and says, hey, my eye's red, it's irritated, what's going on? Well, it's because they came off the steroids. And it's not because they have steroid breakthrough or recurrence of their anterior chamber inflammation, it's because their ocular surface disease kicked up, you stopped treating it. So you wanna treat all of your dry patients for a minimum of four weeks post-op. And if they truly have dry eye and you truly want them to continue to see well and not have dry eye symptoms, I suggest that not only do you start them on steroids preoperatively, but at the same time that you start them on either cyclosporine or lefitagrass. And again, I don't care which one you start them on. I don't think it really matters at this stage. You want them on something which will carry them for at least six months postoperatively. Tell them why you're doing it tell them that they're going to see better, no matter what type of IOL you put in, if they continue to take their dry eye medications. The truth, harsh or otherwise, is that treated dry eye leads to better outcomes. Now, it's hard to do it. It's hard to treat these folks. It's especially hard to justify the chair time, and it's especially hard to feel okay about the effort that it takes you and any other docs in the office that you may be working with or who are working with you. It's hard for your staff, especially in these days of declining reimbursement. If a patient comes in and they only wanna have the basic plain Jane IOL, then you know it can be hard to make that determination. And I think the law of int- unintended consequences has yet to be repealed and we're going to see a lot of people with mediocre post-op cataract results because doctors are going to make the determination that plain Jane reimbursement is plain gets plain Jane care. I encourage you to at least do a rudimentary preoperative evaluation and at least do the easy thing which is treat them with steroids in the immediate pre-op and immediate post-op period so that they can get the best result on an ongoing basis. At the end of the day, when we're thinking about the harsh truths of treating dry eye around the time of cataract surgery, the truth hurts. But nonetheless, I think that we're all obligated to find our own truth. In our, in our own truth, what we should be finding is that our patients deserve our best efforts. And our best efforts include finding dry eye, talking about dry eye, and treating dry eye in the perioperative period. So that's it. I'm Dr. Daryl White. This is I Care Out Loud. I hope you come back and listen again sometime.